Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. I went to meet a clanswoman with her husband and with the Grand Wizard of the Calavern. I asked this white Southern friend of mine to go with me and it, it, he was like, Farai, they don't like race mixing. Today I'm chatting to Farai Chidea. Farai is the creator and host of a brilliant podcast, Our Body Politic, and has worked for numerous outlets, including Newsweek, CNN, ABC News and NPR. She's now covering her seventh US presidential election. Farai, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am so grateful to be with you. It's my pleasure to have you on. Um, I've heard a lot about you um, and I've also spent the last week researching you rigorously. And it would be wonderful if you could tell our audience about your journey into journalism. You know, so for me, it's really just about storytelling, you know, all the different ways you can tell a story and the love of storytelling. But I played a lot of different roles. Um, I've been a field reporter mainly. I've been a radio host. Um TV host and reporter, political analyst, book author, but I will say audio is probably my favorite medium because it's so intimate and you get to hear people's voices and have this connection to them. Well, I think before I let you crack on, um, Farai, I definitely want to go backtrack a little bit because I believe you come from a very prestigious family of journalists. My father, for example, uh, was a communications professional who for a while did telecom, but he, he was an immigrant to the U.S. from Zimbabwe. And when Zimbabwe became independent, he became the news director of the Zimbabwean Broadcasting Corporation. But he actually quit over uh, Robert Mugabe inserting propaganda into the news. My mother was a journalist in the U.S. and Zambia, where my parents lived before I was born. But as a Black woman with small children, she didn't find staying in journalism very easy. And frankly, it's still not very easy for all women with children, let alone Black women with children. And so, you know, when I look at my parents' careers, I see a lot of integrity, but I also see a lot of pain and loss. And this is this can be a very unforgiving profession for many different reasons. And also there's a lot of discrimination based on race and gender and on having children if you're a woman. Um, So I went into this with this kind of um, love of the field, but also an awareness that there would be a lot asked of me that was not fair. And unfortunately, that has turned out to be true. I've had moments of severe employment discrimination. um, But I've also had the most magical when I think about, you know, at this point in my life, I've been to 49 of the 50 states, I've not yet been to South Dakota, where oddly enough, I have relatives by marriage. Um, And I've been to about 30 countries. And a lot of that travel happened directly or indirectly because of work. And Americans who, particularly people like me who end up going to a really good college or a highly thought of college, often are more likely to travel abroad than in the United States. And I'm really glad that I've gotten to see the American heartland, uh, which sometimes gets called the flyover states. And the reality is that this country is big and beautiful and complex and also 
angry and sometimes bitter and painful. And I've gotten to see it all as a reporter. And that makes me, you know, it it hasn't always been easy, but it's been really fruitful. You come to journalism with a very different perspective. I also believe, um, Farai, you grew up in Central Park West in New York, but then moved to Baltimore. You know, they're, they're two quite different places. Did that, did that kind of influence your, your reporting in journalism, would you say? Absolutely. I think in some ways that was the most sen- seminal um, you know, moment that I understood how differently people lived. Because when I lived on Central Park West... It was a middle-class neighborhood. Now it's upper middle-class and wealthy, but it was a middle-class neighborhood, very multiracial, a very free-to-be you and me. Everyone got along, at least where we lived. And I was part of a a group of kids who were part of a multiracial babysitting collective where each mother took all the kids one day a week and then had one day with her own child. And so it was kind of it was a bit of a paradise, you know? Um, And I know not all New York was like that, but it was like that for me. And then when I moved to Baltimore, I had never really thought about my race as in terms of like the black, white color line. Race was an attribute that you had like, you know, the color of pants you were wearing for the day. And, you know, it, it meant more than that, but not so much. And then I got to Baltimore and I was like, oh, race is power. And you could see it everywhere in Baltimore that race was power and the power was held by white people and black people were asked to give up power or to be deferential to whiteness. And in some ways, I say that it was like moving from the 1970s back to the 1950s. And Baltimore still has a very severe race problem, you see, through things like the Freddie Gray case. Um, Not that America doesn't have a race problem, but Baltimore has a very specific type of race problem. And growing up there, nonetheless, was really also empowering because I came from a family of working class Black intellectuals. Like my grandfather never graduated from high school, but he was a book collector and an artist and worked two jobs and helped teach me to draw. And there was this idea that no matter how much money you made, you could still be an intellectual. And so I learned a lot of things from eventually really growing up in Baltimore. This actually really leads nicely to my next question in the interview, which is the main question. And I ask all of my guests, Farai, if there's a story or a moment that you're quite proud of or, or that's had impact. And I, if with your permission, would love to talk to you about how you report on the current culture war. But you've been doing this for years. That's the difference. I think America is just waking up to the fact that this is a huge problem. But this is something you've been covering for years. Yeah, I mean, in my... 20s, I actually spent a period um, intensely reporting on white supremacists and including meeting clans people at different times and really having a lot of empathy for them because I viewed them then and still view them now as um, people who are clinging to an ideology that doesn't serve them well. And I'm not saying they're without agency. They've made a choice, but they're clinging to an ideology out of hatred and fear because they feel the world is to be hated and to be feared. And not just Black people or Jews, et cetera, but that the whole world is against them. And that's a horrible way to feel. Um, It doesn't excuse their behavior. It certainly doesn't excuse 
violence. And when I interviewed Klan's people, I did my research to find out, you know, the Klan is sort of like, you know, uh, your, lo- your local uh, civic club. It's all different depending on where you are. So some of them kill people and some of them just basically talk a lot about how they hate blacks and Jews. And so I, I chose to talk to the people who talked a lot as opposed to the people who might kill me. But when I think back to like how many risks I took with my own safety, it still stands out to me. And then over the years, I began to continue to do that work by telephone and even by Twitter DM. My most recent meaningful conversations with someone who's a white nationalist were over a year on Twitter DM with a guy who said he was from Brooklyn, uh, which is where I live, and I have no reason not to believe him. And there's this whole stereotype that racists live in the South and racists aren't educated and racist this and that. It's like, you know, the reality is prejudiced people live everywhere, just like not prejudiced people live everywhere. And we can't continue to demean poor white people by calling all of them racist, because not all of them are. And I would point to the work of uh, Sarah Smarsh, who really talks about, you know, poor and working class white Americans with much more nuance. And she grew up lower income uh, on a farm outside of Wichita, Kansas. So I really believe in seeing people for who they are. And when it comes to things like the ongoing race culture wars, I really put the, the biggest blame at the the feet of people like Steve Bannon, who are the puppeteers. They're making a ton of money. They've got, you know, they're being paid for days and they are happy to sit back in their mansions and incite the riots in the streets. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They just want to watch the world burn. And that's really what I'm the most distressed about. Well, I want to pick up your story where you, I think you went to meet a clan's woman yes. in the 90s. So I believe you would have been in your 20s um, I back then. For I, Can you tell us about that story? Because I believe there's a real message at the end of it that, that, that the particular couple that you met learned from that. Well, yeah, I mean, there were um, a few different things that came out of that. I had been doing um, a story called Women Who Love to Hate. That was a magazine article. And some of them I interviewed by phone, but I went to meet a clanswoman with her husband and with the grand wizard of the clavern. And there had just been a blizzard. This was in Frederick, Maryland. I'm from Maryland. And um, so there'd just been a blizzard and I didn't know if they were willing to do it. But basically it's like a snow day. All the schools are off. All the businesses are closed. And we, I asked this white southern friend of mine to go with me and it, it, he was like Fry, they don't like race mixing you know he was happy to go with me but he was just like having a white guy in the car will not protect you um so that was interesting and enlightening because he had grown up you know in a place where people were sometimes more uh obvious about their prejudices but what i really felt by the end of the interview was that this woman you know, she was low income. She lived in low income housing. She didn't want her daughter around black people. And she wanted to live someplace all white. And the thing is, she didn't have a race problem. She had a money problem. There's places all over America where you can go that are all white suburbs and all white enclaves and all white parts of the Upper East Side of New York City. And um, it's the, it was just so striking to me that 
this woman was attached to this idea that somehow she had to blame the Blacks and the Mexicans and whoever for her economic situation. And that's how nothing changes because it's so hard to form multiracial coalitions in this country. But um, I still felt a sense of empathy for her because she did want, on some basic level, the best for her child. It was just that it was through this you know, warped lens of race being the only way, you know, racial hatred specifically being the only way that she could see getting something better when in fact, that's not what was going to make her life better. Mm. I mean, that's, it's staggering the fact that you even went to meet them in this car park. I believe her partner had a gun that day. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I, you know, he either had a gun or a very weirdly shaped banana in his car heart <laughs> overalls. And it, and it was, in fact, my white friend who pointed it out. He was like, that guy's got a concealed weapon. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. Wow. So, you, I mean, you have constantly been, you know, putting your safety on the line to tell this story. And, and it feels like, you know, we're in 2020 now. It's probably worth, you know, pointing out that white supremacist extremism is the number one cause of domestic terrorism here in the U.S., just in case people don't know that. So this right, which which is also a media issue that when people don't know it, it's because we have been afraid to say it as professional journalists. And now you see that the governor of Mich- Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, has had her life threatened by white supremacists. And only now are people saying, oh, maybe we should stop calling them militias and start calling them domestic terrorists. But this this is an example of how language has power. Like someone posted on Twitter something like, can you imagine a group of 15 Muslims threatening to kill a sitting U.S. governor and not being called terrorist? Which brings me br- br- brings me to a point, um, your point, I believe. You, you, you mentioned that, you know, Blacks as a group and Muslims uh, as a group are often judged by the actions of, you know, some, of a, a small minority um, who have been violent in the past, whereas somehow we never seem to do the same for whites as a group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that's a big part of it is that when, you know, people assume that the worst that is the worst actions of some black Americans and some Muslims, both American and internationally, speak for the whole group and that every white person who does something like domestic terrorism is an aberration when in fact white extremism is the number one cause of domestic terrorism. And that's a clear example of racial bias in, you know, kind of our cognitive filters and in our media filters. And, you know, we, we people in the media are just people. We grow up in houses with people who have their own racial and gender issues. And I think that one of the number one things that I do is I constantly ask myself, what biases am I bringing into this situation? Sometimes maybe I'm I wouldn't say too open. I don't think you can be too open. But at times I wonder if I cut too much slack to people like white supremacists. Like I'm like, oh, well, you know, they're human beings too and they're suffering. And it doesn't mean that I don't blame them for their violent actions. But I always try to remember, for example, when people, I think that the word inhuman is just the most ridiculous thing because it usually means that it is uniquely human. Genocide is human. 
when people say, oh, the inhumanity of genocide, genocide is a pretty human trait. It's happened all over the world Mm. many, many times throughout history. And so what I try to do is accept the full range of humanity, which includes beautiful, saintly acts of self-love and other love and, and care for community, but it also includes things like genocide and racial terrorism. I look myself in the mirror and I say, what baggage am I bringing to the table when I go to interview someone? Because I have my own baggage. And I try to acknowledge it as a reporter instead of hiding from it or pretending I don't have it. Well, that sounds very sensible. I wonder, Farai, if you feel like, you know, that um, the narrative of white nationalism um, has in some ways maybe intentionally intentionally being, being kept out of mainstream news. I think it has because, you know, for example, I can't tell you how many times at mainstream news organizations people talk about like, essentially, what's wrong with black people? Like, why are black people so dysfunctional? And yet, there's never like a whole bunch of stories about why are white people so dysfunctional? Like, and I'm not saying that there should be, but you can't have one, but just the other. It's like, why are white people more likely to be domestic terrorists? Like, why hasn't that been on the cover of magazines as many times as like, why are black people dysfunctional? It's complete cognitive and cultural bias. It's also a form of continuing oppression. And the media has been a tool of both liberation and oppression. If you look at someone like Ida B. Wells, who's really going through a renaissance right now where she was posthumously given the Pulitzer Prize and, you know, you see her picture everywhere and there's the Ida B. Wells Society founded by uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who also got a Pulitzer the same year as Ida B. Wells did. Um, Ida B. Wells was not welcomed by journalism. She was repudiated by journalism. She was telling truths that no mainstream white publication wanted to hear. She was documenting lynchings, doing data journalism that no one wanted to hear. W.E.B. Du Bois also did certain forms of data journalism, which most people don't know about him. They think of him as like a thinker, sociologist, which he was. But he also did um, data journalism and would hand draw um, you know, illustrations of data. So there's a long history of the repudiation of knowledge from sources that made people uncomfortable. And if journalism has a strong future, it's going to be that we actually begin to accept that knowledge comes from a variety of different sources and that what has sometimes been seen as empirical knowledge is actually quite tainted. So you see the LA Times talking about, well, this is our legacy of white supremacy. You see the New York Times printing, this was probably about a year ago, uh, or maybe even two years ago, uh, an apology for using the term crack babies. And in an analysis, finding out that children who had been born to mothers with crack didn't have these profoundly worse outcomes than many other children. Um, they They were already sort of marked at birth as you know, societal rejects. And now there's this whole generation of kids being born to opioid addicts, but the coverage is much more empathetic because the face of opioid addiction, not all opioid addicts, but when people think of an opioid addict, it's someone who's white and that has affected coverage. So it's just about being aware of how our filters as journalists begin to affect um, the news that people get. And so we can't, 
we can't blame the public for being biased and then think that we're sitting on some, you know, fluffy cloud of objectivity. Um, and I love journalism. I've had so many beautiful moments, like, you know, things like going to uh, Indian country and visiting uh, the Tejano Otum Nation, which is um, along the U.S.-Mexico border and taping um, interviews there about the complexity of having tribal lands on both sides of the border or going to Standing Rock, um, going to places where I really had to be humble because I just knew so little and going to other places where I felt like I knew the story and then learning that, oh, it wasn't quite what I thought. Well, I think everything you've said there is so spot on, and I genuinely hope there will be a shift um, within our industry now. It has to happen really quite quickly. Um, We both know our newsrooms are way too white. uh, They're way too male-dominated. Newsrooms are elitist. Uh, Things drastically need to change. I mean, we are where we are now, um, Farai. You know, it's 2020. We're approaching the election. I think, you know, the fact that the current sitting president um, refuses to denounce white supremacy has caused havoc here, but it also has forced, you know, the media in a direction where they have to confront this topic. Um, Do you feel like, you know, voters are implicitly endorsing or rejecting white nationalism if they vote for Trump or if they don't vote for Trump? The best analogy that I heard, um, first of all, there was some very good research after the 2016 election that showed that Racial resentment was the number one motivator of Trump voters, followed by authoritarianism, followed by economics. So, you know, once you start to disaggregate things, you do see the role of racial resentment. And that's why there were so many different, you know, all this harping on, you know, the idea of the Mexican rapist, which in turn came from Sheriff Joe Arpaio successfully using that to be reelected for 26 years in Arizona. And I covered him, but he kind of perfected that particular type of anti-Mexican, you know, border rhetoric. So it wasn't new. And people who thought that it wouldn't work were not good students of history. I also get super annoyed when journalists don't actually pay attention to um, our own history. But I think uh, one of the best analogies compared it to like cable bundling. Like when I pay my cable bill, it's not like I can say, well, I don't want CNN. I'm not paying for CNN. It's like you're paying for whatever's in the basic cable bundle. You may not watch all of it. You may not like all of it, but you're paying for it. And in the same way, anyone who votes for someone who's openly xenophobic is voting for xenophobia, even if that's not air quotes why you're voting for them. You are voting for that bundle. And so, you know, politics are complicated. And um, in the radio show that I'm doing now, Our Body Politic, which is about women of color in politics, we interviewed a conservative woman of color who was a military veteran and a Trump supporter. And it's clear that she is able to distance herself psychologically from the xenophobia, and she feels that the other things that President Trump brings to the table are more important. I don't get the sense that she endorses his racial views, but she feels like she can disaggregate them, but I'm just not sure it's possible to. 
That's wild. I, it, it's hard to comprehend. And um, Fry, I'm going to go on to our last question because I know you're dashing off to, to record one of your brilliant podcasts. By the way, everybody should subscribe to Our Body Politic. It's fantastic. Oh, last question, Fry, a little bit of a lighter note, potentially, um, depending on your answer. But is there a moment in your career that's been rather crazy? Oh, I've had a lot of crazy moments, but, um, <laughs> but some of the fun, crazy ones were I first went to work at Newsweek back in the days when it was like a big, powerful magazine. And then I I wanted to do something totally different. So I worked at MTV News. And among my adventures there were like getting to sit on Grandmaster Flash's lap while we were doing the VMAs and, you know, trying to get a very intoxicated with blunt smoke, Biggie Smalls to come on camera, you know, chasing stoned rappers around the green room to try to get them to go on camera is a whole skill. And I don't think I mastered it, but it was definitely fun. So I feel like my, my brief amount of time as like an entertainment industry reporter you know, it was so long ago. It was like nearly 30 years ago, but there's still so, I mean, Madonna played our holiday party when we were at MTV News. Are you serious? Absolutely. Oh my God. Well, that, I mean, it's just hilarious that you went from Madonna to clans people. That is quite a severe pivot for I, fair play to you. I definitely feel like for me, the the craziest stories are just the ones that are about real people. It's like, this is not a happy, crazy story, but it's it's an important crazy story where during the last election, I was interviewing a Trump voter in Eastern Ohio, and he verbally sexually harassed me. And I didn't put it in my main story because I said, you know what, people already have you know, all of their preconceived notions about Trump voters. And this is not the story where I need to be talking about this guy's misogyny because it will poison the rest of the story. But I did write about it separately. And I can't remember who said this, but there was a journalist who said, the number one power the journalists have is not what to put in, but what to leave out. And I felt in that case, it was really important to be true to my story by representing, because the story was not about one guy. It was about Trump voters in Eastern Ohio. And in the Trump voter story, it was important for me not to put in an incident that was all about me and, you know, make that story all about me. But later, it was also important for me to talk about it and talk about how humiliating and frustrating it is as a female reporter to be sexually harassed when you're trying to do your job and to like feel like you have to take one for the team in order to be a fair journalist. So that's the kind of thing where that's not fun, but I do feel like I use my best judgment both by leaving it out of one article and writing it into another. Well, you have spent three decades putting this story before your own story. But now on your podcast, you're putting women of color at the forefront of the story, which is fantastic. Everybody, as I said, should go and subscribe to Our Body Politic um, on wherever you get your podcasts. Farai, you're an absolute star. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed this so much and I just wish you the best. And I'm going to sign up and tell everyone about your show. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. 
Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 